Today I'm here with Lilia Tarawa, who is author of the book, Daughter of Gloryville, My Life in a Religious Cult. And I haven't yet read this book, but Lilia was recently on TED. She gave a TED talk. I think this was only about three weeks ago. And it was fantastic. I saw it. I wanted to read her book, but I couldn't wait. And I asked her immediately if she would be on my podcast and she was lovely enough to agree to be on and I think the as of now the your TED talk even though it's only been out for a few days it already has over a million views uh, it's very interesting TED talk Lilia grew up in Gloryville Christian community in the South uh, Island of New Zealand and it's a very isolated community from what I understand. And I'd love to ask her more questions about it. So thank you for being on, Lilia. Oh, you're welcome. Nice to meet you. And hi to everyone who's listening. So um, I'd, I'd like to know more about uh, the structure of Gloryvale mm -hmm. because I, I, I found that there was quite a few news reports about it from New Zealand and that part of the world. But before your TED talk, I hadn't really heard of it. And I'd like to get a better idea of two aspects of Gloryvale. One, the social structure, and second, the religious beliefs they have. So not sure where you'd prefer to start. Maybe we could start with, uh, with the religious beliefs of the community. Mm, yeah, I think that's a good start. Um, so um, Gloryvale's on the west coast of New Zealand, and there's 500 men, women, and children who live together and they practice the doctrines of Jesus Christ, which are New Testament doctrines. Um, but the leaders of Gloria Vale who run the church there have set up a um, a second, I guess, almost a Bible, wherein they have interpreted the doctrines of the Bible and expect everyone to adhere to those doc doctrines. And that's in a book called What We Believe. Um, so everything in this society is structured around religion and God and Christ. Um, so I grew up reading Bibles, going to um, Sunday meetings. We read uh, scripture in school and we prayed at night and we worshiped together. Um, so that's a brief introduction into the religious side of things. In terms of the social structure, Gloria Vale operates um, as a very independent to the rest of the world. So um, the church was actually started by my grandfather, and he was a um, missionary over in Australia. And he they called him the flying evangelist because he would take his plane and fly out to um, remote areas and, sp and spread the gospel of Christ. Um, and the gospel he was teaching was um, based on Billy Graham's philosophies as well, who was an American evangelist. And, um, you know, there was so much interest in what my grandfather was teaching because he was really practical 
and the way that he educated people about the Bible and the New Testament gospel. And so he was invited over to New Zealand, came over here. The churches loved him and um, invited him to come over and be a part of a church permanently. So he brought his wife and children over from Australia to New Zealand and um, started with a church out in Cust, which is just on the outskirts of Christchurch in the South Island of New Zealand. And then what happened is he had a falling out with some of the church leaders. Um, And if you meet my granddad, you'll realize very quickly that his word is law and um, he doesn't like being disagreed with or challenged. So there was an inevitable church split and he took half the church and um, moved them all over to the West Coast where they purchased some farmland. And what how the social structure operates is that um, financially no one has any money. It's all, all the money that is generated through the businesses is kept in communal bank accounts. And um, it's the lifestyle that is the, I guess, value exchange for the labour that the residents put in. Um, so we all lived in communal hostels. So I shared one room with my family and I slept on a, um, a foam mattress my whole life and bunk beds with my siblings. Um, we all wear uniforms that are exactly matching and the same. So I wore a dress that fell down to my ankles, covered my arms to my wrists and rose up to my neck and a headscarf. And that was a symbol of submission to men. And in terms of the structure of governance, um, they have a very clear structure where it's God and then the church leaders and then the men and then the women and then the children. And everyone is expected to submit and obey to anyone who is an authority. Yeah, so that's a brief introduction. When you say um, your, your grandfather was the founder, is that Neville Cooper? Yeah, that is Neville Cooper. He changed his name to Hopeful Christian um, because he wanted um, himself and his followers to actually be choosing names that inspired them in terms of what their values were. So there are people there with names like Temperance Hopeful and Fervent Steadfast and Steady Stand True. I see. And when you say about the communal kind of living, I saw in reports it shows how the women have to do just uh, massive amounts of laundry for the entire community, cook in large kish- uh, kitchens, not in their homes, but in kind of collective areas. And then there's all kind of uh, businesses that I think are, are being run within the community, and no one is paid for this. No one gets a wage. They're just given no, a place the, to live. No, there's and... no wage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're just given a place to live. You're given schooling, a future for your children, roof over your head, food in your mouth. Um, and so I never handled any money at all growing up. Um, the These very specific gender roles. So women are expected to be domesticated house housewives and the men are expected to be providers. So working in the farm, on the dairy and um, in the other businesses they have such as hunting businesses, deer velvet and venison export, pet food factory, and um, sphagnum moss export businesses. Mm. Asking, Going back to the part about uh, religion, are, are there specific aspects in that new book that was written 
that would you say are very essential in to to the lifestyle that is led there that is different from the uh, other communities of Christians you would find? I guess it where it depends on where you go in the world because um, Christian communities are just so different all across the world. Um, having come into Western society, living in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, um, you know I see Christian women wearing pants, cutting their hair, wearing makeup and jewellery. That's something that we were forbidden to do. Um, and I see women being breadwinners in their families. That's something that we were absolutely forbidden to do. And I also see women having equal rights to men. Um, and that's something that we were told very explicitly that in Gloria Vale, our job was to submit and obey men. And if he, if a man said something, I would not be allowed to question his authority at all. So uh, going back to like the very beginning of growing up in this place, when you were extremely young, let's say, you know, as soon as you could remember, um, were you completely isolated from the rest of the world? Did you know the community that was outside of Gloryville or did you just know of Gloryville? Well, I mean, I knew there was an outside world, um, but I mean, we were, we were totally isolated. We lived um, on a farm that's very remote over on the West Coast and we didn't have much interaction with outside society except to um, go to the doctor if it was necessary or visit the dentist. Um, and then once every two years, Gloria Vale holds a annual concert and they invite people to come in and they perform items and creative acts and um, showcase to outsiders the way of life as a means to provide a testimony to others about their lifestyle and the way that we lived. So um, that was the extent of my interaction with outsiders. And what about um, television or radio or just like uh, those kinds of connections to the rest of the world? Would you have that? No, no television, no radio. If there was any media which the leaders wanted us to see, they would take it and then show it to us. Um, we had movies, but they were all heavily edited. Um and we had some music, but it was all heavily controlled as well. So you weren't allowed to have access to that unless you had permission from the leaders. You're also not allowed to leave the geographical location um, of the place unless you have permission from a leader. Mm. So in your TED Talk, I was fascinated, especially how you structured it, that you made the first part of it not, maybe not it's not the first half but it's within the first few minutes you make it very positive sounding mm. um mm -hmm. that on a very superficial uh level for for people who are outside maybe glory veil looking in but then you you dig deeper into it so i was wondering uh, how, what are the the positive aspects that you look back on versus the the negative yeah yeah, so, I mean, I'm a big believer there's always two sides to every story, and I wanted to be honest with people. Um, and that's one thing with my book that people have thanked me for is for honestly showing them both sides and not just, like, living in bitterness towards the community, but also appreciating all the good things it gave me. So 
working together with an entire community that is so close-knit and has a common vision, has common belief systems, and all are led by just a, a couple men, is um, it gives you a real sense of belonging and connectedness. You know, I grew up on the West Coast, which is one of probably, in my view, one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I went horse riding and airline and um, I went hiking and I could see my cousins and my friends at any time because we lived in hostels. You know, I could walk a few meters and there was my cousin's room. Um, so I was always surrounded by people that I loved. So the social connections were um, extremely close. And that was one of the best things about Gloria Vale. They also uh, t- taught us incredible skills like uh, life skills, practical life skills. I know how to sew and cook and spin and embroider and, um, and sew and knit as well. Um, I grew up around babies, so there was always a pregnant tummy. And I was really used to that. I was used to what motherhood and childbirth looked like. Um, So I really believe I've been given some incredible practical skills from the community. Mm. So uh, what was common life like uh, for you and in in your family, just being in Gloryvale? What what does everyday uh, activity look like? Yeah. So I guess... As a, I guess, high school student, I would wake up in the morning. I would be expected to participate in um, maybe some laundry or cleaning or cooking, depending on what I'd been rostered on. Then there would be a communal breakfast. So everyone, all 500 of us, would gather together in the main dining hall and we'd eat breakfast together. There would be preaching and sermons at that breakfast from the leaders. And then we would have music practice afterwards so I learned to play uh, five different instruments and um, then I'd be assigned to um, my daily duties but if I was in school I would obviously go to school so they have an on-school premises which is um, all completely registered with the New Zealand government um, and it receives regular inspections as well so all of the children are given um, NCEA Level 1, which is the minimum requirement for education um, here in New Zealand. And um, then after, so school would maybe go to about three, and then after school I'd be expected to go to my assigned task again, which would be on one of the four women's teams, either, again, cooking, cleaning, sewing, or, um, yeah, doing food preparation. And then you uh, mentioned uh, a story in your TED Talk about how you were going to school and you got a report card. And in the report card, you were told by the, the teacher, it was written there, that you had leadership skills. And this, instead mm. of being a sign of encouragement in your community, you were put on stage and publicly shamed for it and said that this is not the kind of women we want in here. So what other aspects were particular to women in the community, would you say, that kind of kept them down versus the men? I guess it's um, the general be- the belief system. Like, women know their place, and they are um, 
if, if they step out of that, they're put into line pretty quickly. Um, even the fact that you get up every day and wear a headscarf that symbolizes your submission to men tells you straight off the bat on a daily basis that you are less than men. Um, the fact that you wear clothing that covers your entire body because um, if a man lusts after you, then you're the one whose fault it is, then that automatically tells you that you're the person to blame. So it's really like it permeated every single aspect of our lifestyle, this um, philosophy, whereas women were less than men and had a specific role and were to obey and submit to men. Um, even the jobs that we had, like the cleaning, cooking, sewing, like if I wanted to be a vet, I wouldn't have allowed I wouldn't have been allowed to be a vet or a mechanic or or anything that was considered to be the role of a man. I'm really fascinated by the idea of choice when it comes to religious communities. Because it, it yeah. ultimately, so I mean, this is an international question now that's going on with mm. with, with religions, especially religions uh, that are experiencing mass immigration now, uh, like Islam. Um, and when people see from the exterior in, and they see women veiled, and, and they see the, these tight knit uh, religious communities, the question ultimately comes down to choice. And I'm pretty sure if I had spoken to you and maybe young people in your community when you were in there and I had asked them about choice, they probably would have said that the way they're living is their choice. Mm. Probably, would mm -hmm. I be correct in, in assuming that as an outsider if I yeah. went there and I, and I asked them, oh, do you, do, are you happy with how you live? Do you choose to do all this? They would, I, I imagine I'd get a universal yes to most things, right? Yeah, like you absolutely would. So, you know, and the leaders would tell you, everyone here is here of their free will. Mm -hmm. um, and as a young girl living there, like I told the TV programs that came in and did a documentary on me, like I was like, yeah, this is my choice to live this way. I wouldn't want to live any other way. Um, and I received, I've, I've received a lot of questions about my religion and my spirituality, having, um, you know, my TED Talks now had over a million views on YouTube. And that's in inspired a lot of interest in people asking, or oh, how do you make the shift out of religion? Um, and like, how have you grappled with the questions of faith? But when it comes to choice, um, a really good question I got was like, well, how did you feel as a young girl living in that society? And I, my response was, well, it was my social norm. Like I was living totally inside my bubble and I knew nothing different and especially because I'd been so isolated from the rest of the world I had no other influences that would have told me otherwise so it's absolutely completely ignorant to what choice even was and you know as a as someone who's grown up having no rights um, as an adult woman now I've had to reinstate all of those rights the right to earn money the right to wear what I want the right to dress the way I want, the right to have whatever career that I so desire. Um, and these are choices that I would never even have considered for myself because it would have been socially unacceptable inside of my community for me to think that way. So, I mean, that that's a very interesting question, when, especially for people outside of these kind of communities looking in. And I, I don't know if you have an answer to this question, but 
how, how do we evaluate when we look into a community like that and somebody, for example, when you were on um, a, a television uh, news programs and a documentary and they're interviewed and they say, no, this is my choice, but that person was only given a single choice and any other choice they they might have, which they they don't have because it's not even presented to them. And even if they could do it, there's a social social consequences to it that they that would be insufferable. So if you hear a person say it's their choice, but there is no other choices, so that it's it's I choose A because I only have A. How do we judge that as outsiders? I think that's an important question yeah. when people evaluate, like how do you, you know, get out of a religion. I, I think that that's how it has to start because at the same time, you don't, we want to encourage women having free choice, which is another major issue. But these kind of overlap now in our societies. Yeah. Well, I think the real question is how much um, information do those people have accessible to them and how much, um, how, like, how isolated are they from any other outside influences? Because for me, it was about, um, when my friend Grace came into the community and she actually was sent over from the States by her adoptive parents. And Grace was a Chilean girl. She was short, um, dark-skinned, and I hadn't seen anyone like her in my world before. And she brought outside influences into my world, like jewellery and makeup and different types of music, which were forbidden. And because she was beginning to expose me to a different way of living, I started to open my mind and expand my version of what was possible and um, that happened through lots of different things watching movies reading books and as I became more educated um, I was able to empower myself um, so I think the question is really like how isolated are these people and how much information do they freely have access to because information should be freely accessible to everyone. But when it's being withheld from people, then, you know, that's control and manipulation. And if it's control and manipulation, which has been vindicated by a religious belief system, is that okay? I don't think so. Uh, what, do you, what aspects do you think about that kind of um, community makes it a cult versus just a religion? Because the title of your book is My Life in a Religious Cult. What do you yeah. think specifically there makes a, a community or a religion a cult versus just a religion? Yeah, so um, I, I had the same question when I first left because mm. when I was living there, we called ourselves a Christian community, which was always a really positive statement for us. Um, when I came out and I heard from Westerners, oh, well, actually that's a cult. I was like, well, what does that mean? And so I asked, what is a cult? What is a sect? And what makes them different? And what I learned is that a cult or a sect uh, is a religious body that is split off from a larger denomination, which is exactly what happened um, when my grandfather split off from the church that he was a part of. And they isolated themselves. They began to see themselves as the one true church. So they tend to think that they are, I guess they have the way, the truth and the light. Um, and also they have a single leader who stands in the place of God. And for the glory of Ale, that is my grandfather. 
And if you ask them, they will say, no, we don't believe that he would ever take the place of God. But he teaches and the other leaders there teach that God holds him in the palm of his hand and speaks directly through him to the people. So if he says something, we all had to believe it. His word was law. No, his word was the word of God, which is even more powerful to religious people than the word of the law. So that was what really, I guess, brought it home for me, um, where I was like, okay, we've identified ourselves through our uniforms and flagged ourselves as being different and we're a small denomination. So that obviously shows that it was a cult, as well as the extraordinary control and manipulation over the people there and the absolute lack of just normal human rights. As far as everyone else around you, what would be the consequences if anyone started to, to question or put into question, especially the those in the social hierarchy? Yeah, well, you would be ostracized from your society. So they operate according to the belief that if, you know, if you forsake God, then we will forsake you. And so when my siblings left because um, two of my older siblings ran away from the community when they were very young, um, we were expected to burn their photographs, never speak to them again, and cut all contact with them. So the implications of leaving or questioning is that you will lose your entire life as you know it, um, all your social connections, your financial stability, your lifestyle, your education, every single thing that your life rides on, you will lose if you leave that community. So if you were speaking up or speaking out against the leaders, you'd get taken before a men's meeting um, and being, it, it would be like an inquisition and they would hold you for hours upon hours and just brainwash you, psychologically abuse you until you confessed that you were the one to blame. And for a lot of people, I know um, seeing my best friend go through that, it was, it's damaging to people's psychology. Like it's absolute total emotional abuse. You know, that's something I've actually learned throughout my podcast because I've interviewed a lot of women who have lived in very insular cult-like communities or have had um, spouses who were very abusive and uh, kept them isolated in the home. And it could be, you know, a lot of ma uh, male privilege <laughs> or in the privilege of the way I grew up. But it took a while for me to understand that you cannot leave a community like that. Because to me, I, I, I would sometimes think, well, why don't you just grab your things and just go, <laughs> right? Yeah. It was through a lot of conversations that you start. I start to pick up on the fact, well, okay, how do you go, right? You, you grab, even yeah. if you were able to walk out the door, you know, especially if you've been there all your life in a community like that or in a household where you're brought up in a, you know, where only people in your community or in your religion are allowed to be your friends or your acquaintances. So m much like you, they, they would say, well, they, they even if they worked, they're not allowed to have control of the, over their money. So they leave with no money. They, they were only allowed to have friends in that community. So they have nowhere to go and stay with. They don't have friends outside that community. 
and it, there would be heavy uh, social consequences if they were ever to go back. So mm. there, there was all these little things that I had to start to realize before I could uh, start to understand a community like uh, like that and why you can't just pick up and leave. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, when you consider your life, like when you consider your life, where do you get your food from, where do you get shelter from and your water from? And these are basic human needs. Like it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Those are the base human needs. And you're putting them at risk to leave your community. You have nowhere to stay. You have no way to eat. And like how, how are you going to hydrate yourself? Because you just have nowhere to go. So you're literally on the streets with nothing but the clothes on your back. And with no skills uh, as that as well, because you're not in a normal situation where you have, um, let, let's say, you know how to fill out, um, you know, a, a tax um, form to if you were to go for apply for a job. If you if you try to apply for a job, they want an address. It'll take time to even yeah. accumulate and they money. Want identification, I, uh, identification, which you probably didn't leave with because it was under the control of uh, of mm. your community. And then also th there's the aspect of it's sometimes the stories sound really horrible about where the person is growing up, but as bad it as it is or was, it's still not easy to leave your family and your community, even if they are particularly horrible to you, especially when you know you're not going to be able to come back. That still, I notice, is not an easy decision to make when you're when you think I'm just going to leave my my family. I think you left with your family, though, correct? Yeah, I, I was really, really lucky in that. And my my family was the first entire family that had left in years and years. And pretty much us leaving started an exodus where there have been more and more families, complete families, break away from Gloria Vale. And I think that's a really positive step because in the past, when people were leaving, it was just one individual who had to sacrifice everything, including their direct family. Um, and now... We've, I guess, set a new standard where we can say actually whole entire families can leave churches together. And having my family around me gave me a really good start into life on the outside, you know, because I was already suffering from losing my friends, losing my life as I knew it, feeling like I was completely ungrounded. I'd been uprooted. And my family together, we all put our roots down. We didn't do it. I didn't have to do it on my own. Can I ask you what was that those first weeks, months like when you first left? Oh, it was it was surreal. Like I, I couldn't even believe it was real. I didn't think it was real. Like I was living in this like dream world where everything that was happening to me, I was kind of just walking through it and felt like I had absolutely no control over it. After we left, I was just like has this really happened? Like, did I really do that? Did I make that decision? Um, yeah, so. Was there was anything some... hard about it? Was it hard to dress the way you hadn't dressed before or to socialize in a community outside the community had grown up? Or were there any difficulties? Despite the freedom you might have, were there freedoms, let's say, that were hard to take on because they were just so new and scary maybe in some ways? Yeah, well, it was um, first like releasing my judgment of the world because in Gloria Vale, we'd been taught that the world was 
an evil, sinister place full of sinners, murderers, idolaters, adulterers. And so I'd had this perception of the world that it was this terrible place. And so, like, what was I going into? Um, Then when I started to, like, dress myself differently, I felt like everyone was still judging me um, because I felt so different to everyone in my society. Um, I remember I put on, like, sheer tights and a um, dress that was just above my knees, and I wore it to church one day. And um, this was church on the outside. And the whole time I was like, I, I was thinking that the pastor was looking at me and thinking that I was immodest and immoral and impure because I dressed in this way. So is the constant fear of thinking people are looking at you and judging you because you're constantly doing things that are outside of your belief system. So you're constantly like, if I cut my hair, Like, I not only have to cut my hair, but I have to deal with the guilt. And I have to deal with the questions like, am I actually committing a sin that is going to send me to a lake of hellfire and brimstone by putting scissors to my locks? So it's all those little questions that you have to try and figure out for yourself about what is right and wrong. was um, Was it hard for the rest of your family? I think it's been really challenging for all of us. Um, You know, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, And as I wrote in my book, a lot of stories that showed people the challenges I went through trying to socially integrate. Um, And it's also part of the reason I wanted to talk about it and write my story and begin to share what had gone on for me because I know that there are so, there are so many people struggling with the same challenges that I had. Um, I've received so many messages from trauma victims, people who have broken away from religious communities, who have been in physical physically abusive relationships, asking me questions about how to restore their spirits and how to heal their minds. Um, when I started to really go, okay, I'm going to talk about this. I had a nervous breakdown. I was totally suffering from um, post-traumatic, stress di- um, post-traumatic stress disorder, but I didn't even realize it um, until I actually started to talk about things and feel like I wanted to move forward with my life instead of carrying what I felt like was a weight of shame. Yeah, that's something almost universal to every woman I've spoken to from any religion in any part of the world is they suffer from some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. And usually they, they it took them a while to even realize they do. Um, mm. They're almost like a, a, like a normalization in their minds about what happened to them that they don't think it's that big a deal or they don't think it was, yeah. it was that significant. Um, how do people react when you talk about, Glory Vale and your your time there to people outside and just in the normal world. What kind of responses uh, do do you get about it? What what, what is it? Yeah. Also, things that maybe they don't. It's hard to explain. It's hard for somebody to imagine. Yeah, um, I'm, I receive like mostly positive support and encouragement, and um, that I've managed to break free. Um, and people are people are always though shocked. So you have to get used to meeting someone and telling them this bit about yourself that they will always go, wow, really? And you'll always know you're different. 
because when you share that story, people will always have that reaction. And so, um, yeah, it's been, I talked about it when I first came out initially with some of my friends, but when I kept getting these shocked reactions, I started to go, okay, maybe I am really different. Maybe I shouldn't talk about this anymore because I want to fit in in the world out here where I want social connectedness, acceptance and belonging, um, which I've lost from my previous life. And if I let people know that I'm different, they won't accept me anymore. In what sense won't they accept you anymore? Well, in my, in my mind, I thought that they might think that I'm strange and that I guess it's that judgment of well, what did you live there for? Why did you why did you not leave earlier? See, I had that prejudice as I was telling you. It's it's not an easy thing to even understand uh the the cult-like atmosphere and how you can't just walk out of a place like that. It's a very hard thing if you've never been in something like that to understand. It's taken me quite a while through dozens of conversations with people to absorb yeah, and it's the same, like, not just with people from cults. Like, even here in New Zealand, um, we ask, why don't women leave abusive relationships? Mm. And we say, well, obviously, you know, he's hitting her, he's beating her and the kids. Why doesn't she leave? The fact is that 50% of intimate partner homicides occur at the point of intended or actual leaving. So she cannot leave because she's literally putting her life at risk. But as, right. a, as a privileged person and someone who's never experienced that, we go, oh, like, she's just being silly. Like, she should just up and leave and take the kids. But it's not that simple. Right. I, th I think also in the United States right now, there's a lot of conversation going on due to uh, workplace sexual abuse, um, especially in the entertainment industry. And... And a lot of people I've seen question like, well, why didn't they report it? Why not go to the police? Why not say something? And I think, again, you have to put yourself in, in, in a deeper situation where, well, the person, this is happening at their work. They Maybe they're a single mother, a mother and they have to take care of children and they need a paycheck. And if they just, you know, say uh, something about what happened to them. Well, what if, it, you know, they lose? What if they're not believed? What if they lose their job? What if, you know, so, and it's not always easy to lose your job and just get a, uh, another one. So there's always situations that go deeper that, that women maybe can't come out and just uh, protect themselves. Yeah. And um, there's also like, you have to understand, in an abusive relationship, as a victim, you are, manipulated into thinking that everything that happens to you is deserved or your fault. So if it's my fault, then how much shame would I feel to actually come forward and talk about what's happened to me? Because it's actually my fault. Like it's my fault he raped me or it's my fault he beat me. So that's even that's the hardest thing and a lot of what I'm doing in my next book is talking about releasing these mindsets of shame and guilt so we can actually move forward and overcome that victim mentality that is, has been so brainwashed into our psychology as victims of abuse. I think in one of your videos I remember you saying that you were told to some degree that you were in some way a horrible human being every day that you were in Gloryville. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like the, 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 one of the core beliefs of being a Christian is that you are a sinner, that you are off the bat unworthy and that you need the blood of Christ in order to make you worthy. So if that is the founding core principle of a religion, how does that impact on the self-worth of children? How does that impact on the self-worth of children moving through teenage um, and then coming into adulthood? If you've always been told that you're a sinner and that you are unworthy and worthless. I I saw uh, an interview uh, with you with a female reporter and to go back to the, the, the subject of dress, I was kind of surprised that the questions she asked you at some point where she said, well, in Gloryville, you were dressed in a way to appease men, but now you dress, let's say, sexy, and that's also just another way of appeasing men. So they're kind of equal. I, I think she she missed the point when, when, I, when I heard that. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I was kind of even surprised she asked it, especially as a woman. Um, yeah. I agree. I, you you agree, and um, I do agree. Yeah. To when she said it, she almost said that dressing sexy almost had a negative aspect to it. That mm. and, and that mm-hmm. it, and also that you choosing to dress in in clothes that make you look nice. That if men like it, well, there's a, that's a negative aspect to it. Yeah, it's another form of victim blaming. Like, it's it's putting the responsibility on the victim and saying, well, I raped you because you wore a dress that was a little too short and um, I found you attractive. And so it's about abusers and perpetrators not taking responsibility and blaming the victims. And that's what is, I, I see this every day in religion, like, even across the world, I look at like Muslim countries where women still have to dress completely covering their bodies. Like it's another way of controlling women because as long as they're the victim and they think it's their fault, they will never choose to empower themselves. Don't you think that's also where the reporter, she missed the, the mark on pointing to your the way you dress as looking nice and that entices men, therefore something wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I'm on the same page. <laughs> right? It's a li- I found it, it made me cringe just a bit when she said it because it gave me the impression that she was almost pointing a finger as to you're doing something wrong by looking mm. that way and you're enticing men. Well, that's just the first kind of step towards, you know, saying, hey, she was wearing a, a short skirt. Yeah. I, and I, your response was very nice. It was just, well, no. I dress this way because it makes me feel good. And yeah, it, and, absolutely. and I think, you know, beyond that, which you, you didn't say yourself, but I maybe you would agree is that it doesn't matter whether some guy thinks you look nice or maybe you don't or some woman thinks you look nice or maybe you don't. The point is, is yeah. how you feel about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's about, as you say, choice. Like I now have a choice to dress however I want. And to me, if I get up out of bed every day and I choose to put on a skirt or pants or shorts or a low-cut top or a turtleneck, like that is all my choice. And that empowers me on a daily basis. Whereas 
in a past life, I had no choice. I had five uniforms that I had to get up and wear every single day. And so choice, choice, this idea of choice is such an important topic that we need to be having in, in the space of like human rights and looking at um, how are human rights actually being taken from people by removing people's choices from them. Right. It's it's very usual in, in certain countries that they that there's limited access to the Internet, uh, limited access to education, limited access to, mm-hmm. to books. Um, yeah. Especially, and, and usually anytime you see limited access to education and uh, in the Internet, it's always the, the women have less of access than even the men usually. Mm. Um. So I wanted to ask you how your religious beliefs evolved between being in Glory Vale, just leaving, and now, because um, because you you left Glory Vale maybe for the social dynamics, but it wasn't that you just completely left the religion, mm. maybe, or did you? I don't know. Um, so, well, I guess from Glory Vale, I had identified myself as a Christian. And after I left, I went to church and I began to experience um, a little morsels of what the world had to offer. And um, I still felt like I was living in bondage, that I was trapped, that I couldn't make decisions that I felt were good for me because I would always feel guilty about them. This is in churches outside of Gloryville, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because there's still a lot of rules um, and there's still a lot of rules about sex about same-sex marriages, about um, or relationships. There's so many rules, and it's so fundamentalist. And you know, I started making friends with people who were homosexual, and I was asking, like, what what kind of God would judge these people? Because if I have love for this person and I can build a friendship with them and remove judgment from my heart then wouldn't any God do that too? Um, And then it came to really key points in my life where I was actually like, okay, I need to decide whether I'm going to have sex or not. Um, And as a virgin, having been brought up and raised in a cult, a religious community that had arranged marriages where you didn't even touch the skin of your partner at all anywhere on the body until the day that you were married, this was a big step for me. Um, and when I decided that I wanted to have sex because it was something that I felt desire to do, then I said, well, I'm actually going to step totally away from church because I can't still be a part of a social group that tells me that doing this is wrong when I believe that it's not. So I stepped fully away from church and I began to, I didn't identify myself as a Christian anymore. And then I started to read books on psychology. I wanted to know what makes us do the things we do and I guess not be blind and ignorant anymore and I wanted to educate myself like there are so many other aspects um and different strains of philosophy and theology and spiritual beliefs out there that it would be so ignorant of me to think that I've found the one way that is right and that was something in Gloryvale that we were taught we have the right way Everyone else is wrong. So I started to say, no, I'm going to be open-minded about what might or might not be true about God or religion or spirituality and try and understand 
other people. Um, and when I started to remove my judgment against other religions, against people who are not religious, then I was actually able to build deeper connections with a more diverse social group, people who were in same-sex relationships, people who were in relationships where they were having children outside of marriage, um, people who chose to be single and not marry at all, people who were had a different belief system altogether, like Buddhism or Muslims or Catholics. And I started to just look at humankind as a single species. Like we're all the same and there's no need for us to sort and separate ourselves anymore. And so I believe that religion inherently is quite flawed and that it separates us and as as people. Mm. So wh- why do you think that the people in Gloryville decide to live, well, a lot of people didn't decide it, but why, how does a community like that even get started? I guess this is my question. Yeah. Is it just from like the founder down that he is just the power dynamic to control people that need? Yeah, I really, I believe it was my grandfather. Like that place would not have been possible without his leadership. So it, it all started with him all of it and because he was so charismatic and so persuasive then people and he gave people something they could believe in you know we're all looking for some sense of purpose or meaning in life and he was able to give that to people and so they believed in him how, how do you work to to break that system down because uh, people were asking you you know how, how do you get out of, of religion but even if you were to put this advice in a book or on the internet, as you say, a lot of people in Gloryville, for example, yeah. didn't have access to to those kind of things. So, yeah, it, there, what is the solution? Example, like, should there be some kind of involvement from the government? I don't know if making their community entirely illegal and coming in and breaking it down, but perhaps. Um, working against giving them uh, social benefits because I think you said they receive social benefits from the from the government maybe in that sense kind of working against them or is there anything like social groups can, can do because even if you talk about it you know on on in a television program or or in a documentary these are not things maybe people in the community might see so how, how do you work to to deconstruct these kind of communities yeah, um, I don't have all the answers, but um, I'm working on some. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, I think like a huge part of it is awareness, um, raising awareness that this is even a problem or an issue that's affecting people. And um, because, you know, as you have mentioned before, when, and from a place of privilege, you don't even understand that, that like how or why that happens. Um I think education's hugely, hugely important. So having, um, like, I would love to see Gloria Vale's doors open and actually have teachers from outside and from external um, schools going in to teach the children. And I would love to see curriculum that actually are required to teach a variety of religions inside of that so that children have access to knowledge. Um do you think that maybe should see... be enforced by law, that kind of thing? A certain level of education and awareness of the 
Well, for the yeah, I'd love mm-hmm. to see it, and I'd love to see it written into uh, you know a bill, a bill that we're actually saying, okay, all children need to be educated in terms of not just one um, type of religion, but all types of religion, so they can make decisions and have choices. Um, for me, because I was uneducated about any other any other options you don't know what you don't know so you accept what you know and just do your best with that um yeah I think also having relationships with people in those situations as well is really important so somehow taking the influence from outside um for me a lot of my work is done online so in some um religious communities they do allow access into social spaces online for people and so it's about putting influence out there there that could touch people in those arenas like there was a girl over in the states who recently um came out of a hate group and she actually started to communicate with people via twitter and that was initially what broke her out Um, And she was having conversations with people on Twitter. Um, So I think it's about having as much influence in as many spaces as we possibly can. So education, socially, financially, um, and a diversity of opinion being brought into those spaces and really fostering diversity. The person you're talking about who started to become aware of more of the outside world and arguments, is that Megan Phelps Roper? Yeah, it is. Ah, I saw yeah. her interviews where she <laughs> talked about that. And then I begged her to follow yeah. me on Twitter and she did. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was nice of her. Um, awesome. Yeah, no, that's uh, and that's not the first person I actually heard um, in interviews and talking about their upbringing who mentioned how social media and conversations with people through their awakened something inside them and made them question a lot of things even though you know not not a lot of great things happen on social media but sometimes um a lot of times it's just you know awful but yeah well uh, you're putting out this podcast on social media so like it's more about like the right people using the tool in the right way so it takes influences and social influences to actually talk about these messages in an arena where people are listening Right. And you actually have a YouTube page where you have a lot of videos that aren't really about your experience in, in religion or, or glory veil. Um, could you describe like what, what your YouTube is about? Yeah. So I talk about lifestyle um, things. So a lot about business mindset um, and building online, uh, building an online audience and having social influence online. Um, a lot about health because I work in holistic, healthy lifestyle. That's um, one of my chosen fields. And um, I haven't actually started to create any content around um, this topic because I only just recently published the book in August. And so now as my fans and followers are beginning to ask me to answer their questions, I'm going to produce, be producing more content along the lines of um, human empowerment and religion, spirituality, intuition, um, and psychology. So can keep an eye out for that. Great. Um, so you're actually a very unique case of anyone that I've ever spoken to. Um, 
and in what way? <laughs> in a very interesting way is that I've always spoken to, you know, people who were very religious at some point or maybe in a in a cult or something like that. But I never got to actually see video of a person when they were in that group at that time, which was interesting. I got right. to see videos of you in Gloryville um, and even yeah. being interviewed. And I was wondering, especially as we're talking about now, about having access to information through the internet, what would you say to yourself at that time when you hadn't woken up yet? What is something that that person could hear that would spark something in them? Mm. I think if I was to give any sort of advice, I would simply remind people to stay endlessly curious about the world, the world around them and inside them, um, and to always continue to ask questions and to be to demand answers because it was when I was asking questions that I wasn't getting answers to that I actually started to question the leader's judgment and question their authority. Um, well, thank you, Lilia, for, for being on. Um, is there any last message you want to say or uh, give a shout out to your social media where people can find you? Yeah, so I'm Lilia Tarawa on pretty much every platform, um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat. Um, so that's L-I-L-I-A-T-A-R-A-W-A. And my website is liliatarawa.com. If you'd like to connect with me, I'd love to hear more about your story and um, share and exchange thoughts. Well, I'll also leave links in the description to this podcast so you guys can find Lilia on social media. And thank you so much again for being on, Lilia. Thank you. Thanks, Lilo.